0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Protests and conversations about police reform in Denver right now center on black lives. Other communities disproportionately affected by police shootings are also engaged in these conversations. Somebody
1: who is a Mexican-American watching the violence towards people of color is honestly
2: terrifying.
0: We'll talk with a Latino political group advocating for police reform. Then why some rural counties are frustrated with how the state grants waivers to public safety health orders. And mail ballot does not help one party or
3: the other, it helps voters.
0: Colorado's working with other states to expand mail-in voting during the pandemic. And from UFOs to what's known as the world's largest garbage dump, high in orbit. We'll set our sights on space. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. After nearly two weeks of protests over police brutality and systemic racism, the mood shifted Tuesday night in downtown Denver.
4: We're going to relax tonight and tonight we're going to have reflection.
0: Hundreds gathered for a candlelight vigil to remember George Floyd, the Minneapolis man killed in police custody. He was laid to rest Tuesday in his hometown of Houston, Texas. The glow of phones and candles illuminated the Greek amphitheater and Civic Center Park while Pastor Ken Brown of Trinity United Methodist Church read scripture to the crowd. Afterwards, he said the life of George Floyd reminded him of an aspect of Judaism.
5: In the Jewish faith, there are multiple names for God endless names for the experience of God in the Jewish faith. And there's this one word that most Jews can't pronounce. In fact, they struggle to pronounce because it's one of those words that has no vowels. It's spelled Y-H-W-H. It means to be. To be present to be in the past to be in the future and this word that we can't pronounce when Jews attempt to articulate it it sounds like as if they are taking a breath as if they're gasping for air so in the Jewish faith there's this belief when one is born When one takes their first breath, they are saying the name of God. With this breath, they are articulating their faith with every breath they make in their faith. So in this vein, I want you to imagine for just a moment, when George Floyd was born and took his first breath, he said the name of God. And for the entirety of his life, as long as he lived, born in North Carolina, moving to Houston, dying in Minneapolis. He said the name of God every time he breathed. Until that dreadful moment when he could no longer breathe.
0: Conversations about police reform in Denver right now are centered on Black lives, brought to the forefront by George Floyd's death. Other communities that are disproportionately affected by police shootings are also engaged in these conversations right now. Andres Venture recently shared their experience with Colorado Matters.
1: Honestly, if somebody who is a Mexican-American, LGBT, specifically trans and gay, and 22 years old, Watching the hate and the violence in this country towards people of color and towards people who are just trying to peacefully express that they have the right to live, too, is honestly terrifying.
0: Sochil Gaitan is the co-chair for the Colorado Latino Forum. Socio, welcome. Good morning. Thank
2: you for having me.
0: CPR's investigative team has found a third of people police shoot in Colorado are Hispanic, even though Latino people only make up a fifth of the population. Tell me about what this movement means in Latino communities.
2: You know, as a Latina uh, living in Denver for 40 plus years now, um, having come from the immigrant community, this movement uh is of great significance even to our community which is not a monolith um made up of so many different um latino subgroups such as chicano, mexicano, uh latino, uh undocumented immigrants and um we understand that and we know that the liberation of our black brothers and sisters um, is what is also going to uh, lead to our liberation. It aligns uh, with theirs. And so it's very important that we support the Black Lives Matter movement.
0: And can you give me an example or tell me what it looks like in the Latino community um, to face such high rates of violence by
2: police? It's... Uh, Quite frightening. It's terrifying. Uh, we have. I'm having a visceral reaction to just the data and the numbers of, of our Latino brothers and sisters being killed by cops. Um, it's of great significance to see that the Black Lives Matter movement um, ha- is having uh, a great significance right now, and it's not just a moment, but rather a significant movement uh, that we should be supporting and moving towards. Um, The police abuse that our community has had to endure um, has been destroying our neighborhoods and our families. And we must align with this movement uh, in order to make a real change occur, not just reform change, but a real transformation of the Denver Police Department.
0: The Colorado Latino Forum is engaged in conversations with Denver's Department of Safety. What are the most important changes you want to see?
2: As we're in conversations as the Colorado Latino Forum with the Director of Safety, Murphy Robinson, uh, we are placing some immediate demands of what we would like to see. While we appreciate uh, Director Murphy Robinson and Chief Pazin's uh, current changes uh, to the use of forced policy, uh, we need to continue in making these unprecedented changes that are happening right now in our study. I believe that uh, we can make this happen if we continue with the conversation. And as we have their attention, uh, we would like to make some immediate demands. And these are, again, just the beginning as we move towards a new paradigm of transformation of, of policing, and that is to have uh, then start being more transparent with the public and start releasing information and uh, making it very accessible to anyone in the public regarding um, any uh, police abuse that may occur. We want to see reports and actual data of who, what, when, and where, Um, We also would appreciate um, the continued efforts uh, that they are showing us right now, which is to maintain communication with community, uh, to have the independent monitor um, be open to having um, other uh, community review uh, boards, uh, but that the community review boards also have um, diverse groups of people within them uh, because we've seen that in the past where we have community review boards that are still made up of mostly the white population in Denver rather than a diverse BIPOC community. And by BIPOC, I mean the Black Indigenous People of Color Communities. Uh, and those are just a few among several others uh, that we're asking for uh, as immediate changes in policing right now.
0: And are there changes that you want to see that would improve equity specifically for Latino people?
2: Yes, um, absolutely. We're we're asking for um, the continued support from Chief Paisen to, as he stated before, not to excuse the bad behavior of of cops. Um, We appreciate him saying those words, that he's not going to excuse that behavior. And we need him to take action to holding uh, police officers accountable in violating policy, current policy. And we also believe that the disciplinary matrix uh, also needs to be, needs to have some changes. But we need a community review board to take a look at that and um, make the changes along with the community review board made up of a diverse group of people. Um, And we ask that uh each case of of abuse by cop be reviewed thoroughly and, and investigated formally um and those reports be presented to um the public uh, because we have yet to see some of the detailed information on some of that um i know i understand that uh, chief Pazin agrees with making that happen, but we have yet to see it. So we really need to start seeing action on behalf of the Denver Police Department as well as the Director of Safety and his office.
0: Thank you so much, Socio. Thank you. Socio Gaetan is the co-chair of the Colorado Latino Forum, a Denver-based group that advocates for political, social, educational, and economic strength of Latino communities. When we come back, the growing push to get more people to vote by mail during the pandemic This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: Democratic Senate primary candidates John Hickenlooper and Andrew Romanoff come together June 16th to debate key issues facing Coloradans. I'm Ryan Warner from CPR News. Join me, Andrew Hio from Denver 7, and Justin Wingerder of the Denver Post as we learn where these candidates differ on key issues. And we answer your questions. Send a voice memo to news at CPR.org. Then tune in June 16th for the Colorado Democratic Senate primary debate.
0: As the state slowly eases social distancing restrictions across Colorado, some counties have been able to skip ahead in the process, allowing for larger public gatherings and more extensive reopenings. Since late April, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment has allowed counties to apply for variances on the statewide public health order, creating a patchwork of different social distancing regulations around the state. So far, half of Colorado's counties have received some kind of variance, but some rural counties say that they are not being evaluated fairly. Officials in some of these counties are now lobbying for more local control when it comes to the coronavirus. Lindsey Fent has been talking with county officials about those variances that have been rejected. Hi, Lindsey. Hi. So what exactly is a local public health variance and how does a county get one? So variance is anything
1: that deviates from the statewide safer at home order. So a county can apply to open a type of business or hold an event with more, than, uh, with more than 10 people under a variance. So then once they apply, the State Department evaluates those applications based on how many COVID-19 cases are in that county, uh, how prepared the health system is, and then what they're proposing to do to mitigate the spread of the disease in whatever it is that they plan to open.
0: So what does this look like across the state right now?
1: So it's created sort of a patchwork of different regulations. So in one county, you might be able to go to a gym, but then in the county next door, uh, you still won't be able to. Uh, So the state did this because they wanted to allow for more flexibility on the local level uh, in areas where there might not be as many cases of COVID-19.
0: But you said that some officials in some counties are upset with the way that this is being implemented.
1: Yes. So uh, some officials in rural counties believe that the way the application is set up, that it favors large businesses or cities that have resources to police social distancing rules. Um, Some county officials also say that the state health officials in Denver don't understand the issues in rural Colorado well enough to make these decisions. Um, And then other counties say that their applications have been judged unfairly based on different criteria.
0: Do you have examples? Yes. So uh,
1: both Alamosa County and Montezuma County have not had their variances approved. They both have low numbers of cases, but the state health department issued their decision based in part on the number of cases in the surrounding region that's outside the counties. So in Montezuma, those are high rates of COVID-19 in neighboring counties in New Mexico. And in Alamosa, um, there have been some agricultural outbreaks in surrounding counties. So in both of these counties, the officials say that they want to be judged based on their own county situation, not that of their neighbor's. Um, one Alamosa County Commissioner called it a slap in the face.
0: So what are counties without approved variances doing? So right now there are 16 counties
1: with pending requests. Um, all counties that don't have a variance have to follow the state order exactly, with no exceptions. Um, and so far, no county officials have openly said that they're going to defy that rule um, but there have been a few county officials that implied that they're not going to enforce all the restrictions under the state public health order.
0: Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thank you. Reporter Lindsay Fent has been tracking how variances from the public health orders are granted and why some counties are frustrated with the process. Long lines and crowded polling places aren't fun in the best of times. During a pandemic, they can be downright dangerous. Colorado is one of only five states that mails a ballot to every registered voter, whether they request one or not. But in the age of coronavirus, should more places be doing this? Here's Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold.
3: If we do not act as a nation very quickly, uh, Americans who are Republicans, Democrats and independents will all be faced with the question, do I go into a, a crowded polling location and risk my health or do I sit home and not vote?
0: Congress earmarked funds in its biggest coronavirus aid bill to help with the 2020 elections, but states will only get that money if they put up some of their own, too. It's a tough ask when many states are looking to slash budgets this year. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim recently spoke with Secretary of State Griswold and U.S. Representative Joe Naguse about this push to all-mail ballots and who should pay for it. Nagoose recently introduced a bill that would let states access federal funds without spending their own money.
7: So it's a very important common sense uh, measure that we think could certainly help our states, particularly as they deal with the economic fallout from the COVID 19 pandemic. As you know, Colorado is facing uh, a shortfall in the billions. This is a small step that could help uh, our state.
4: Secretary of State Griswold, your predecessor Wayne Williams noted that when Colorado moved to all mail ballots, the state and local counties had to cover most of the costs. They didn't get much federal help. Why shouldn't that apply to other states considering moving in this direction? Uh, I, I truly believe that we need to make sure that every eligible American can have their voice heard in
3: our elections, including any elections during a pandemic. And no American should have to choose between protecting their health and casting a ballot. You know, the the amount of money already uh, appropriated by the federal government is a huge help in making sure that states have the ability to respond to the coronavirus. Uh, And I just really appreciate the congressman's work to further help states, uh, because I I do not believe that states should have to choose between cutting benefits and, and resources that are really needed for citizens
4: during this time and securing the right to vote. But just to get to the point of it, though, Should states fund the bulk of this, or should it be the federal government, in your opinion?
3: Um, Well, I believe that we are in incredibly unique circumstances. Uh, And I do think that it's a relatively small amount that's needed to make sure that states are able to offer elections that work, especially during the coronavirus. Uh, So I I do believe that it's the federal government's duty during this time of pandemic and during this time of states having to slash their budgets to assist states in expanding both mail ballots and secure elections and safe elections during COVID-19.
4: Even in Colorado's congressional delegation, there seems to be a split over whether moving to all-mail ballots across the country is a good thing. Uh, Colorado Senator Cory Gardner, a couple of weeks after the passage of the CARES Act, said that Washington should not run state's elections. He essentially said it's a state decision. Representative Neguse, is there a role for Congress in this debate, and should it be pushing all states to mail-in voting?
7: Yes. I think the answer is yes. The right to vote is a fundamental right. And I believe the federal government should work in collaboration with our states and our secretaries of states, such as Secretary Griswold, to ensure that state laws uh, enable uh, voters who are legally eligible to vote to do so in an accessible way. And I find uh, the criticisms a bit confounding. The senator that you mentioned was, of course, elected in an all-mail ballot election in 2014. Uh, The system here in Colorado has worked quite well, and it has bipartisan support uh, from Republicans and Democrats here locally, uh, who agree that uh, making voting, again, uh, easy and accessible for those who are legally eligible to vote is just plain common
4: sense. You're both Democrats. All-male voting has definitely become a partisan issue, especially here in Washington, D.C. If you really want to see all-male voting spread, uh, you have to overcome a lot of distrust on the right. How are you working on that? Um, Secretary Griswold, maybe you can answer first.
3: Um, Well, thank you for that question. Uh, You know, mail ballot does not help one party or the other. It helps voters. Colorado is proof of uh, the benefits of vote by mail. And in fact, in the last two out of three general elections, more Republicans have used vote by mail than Democrats. Our participation rates have skyrocketed since adopting mail ballot, but also mail ballots add a level of security to election systems. Uh, And the last thing I would say, on top of just having conversations across the aisle, our elections division in Colorado is assisting the entire nation. Uh, We are having election division to
4: election division conversations uh, to support other states in expanding vote by mail. Uh, Secretary Griswold, mail-in voting depends on having a well-functioning U.S. Postal Service, but in recent weeks we've heard about COVID outbreaks at mail processing centers, and their service is warning that it could run out of money soon. How concerned are you about the mail side of all-mail voting in Colorado?
3: Well, I think it's very important to make sure that the U.S. Postal Service has the resources that they need I was very pleased to see Congress uh, appropriate the funds uh, for the Department of Treasury to go into a loan with the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, and we really urge federal support of the Postal Service because they are a key partner in Colorado uh, for our democratic processes, namely uh, sending mail
4: ballots and the return of mail ballots. Representative Goose, if Congress is pushing for mail-in voting, what is it doing to make sure the organization responsible for delivering and collecting those ballots remains solvent?
7: It is critical that the federal government and the Congress take action to support the U.S. Postal Service. As uh, you know, I introduced a bill the protect our post offices act in late March. Uh, We had one co-sponsor when we introduced that bill. It would provide uh, $25 billion in an emergency appropriation to the Postal Service because we know from the Postmaster General that uh, absent congressional action, the Postal Service will be unable Uh, to perform at the level of of services that we've all uh, become accustomed to. That bill now has over 100 co-sponsors, and it was included in the HEROES Act uh, that passed uh, the United States House of Representatives just a few weeks ago. My hope is that the Senate will will take that up, and obviously the negotiations between the Senate uh, and the House, as well as uh, this administration and Secretary Mnuchin, are ongoing. uh, But I uh, am hopeful that uh, our a uh, bill on this issue could potentially get across the finish line. Here, we have to make sure that that happens, uh, as you said, for a variety of different reasons—not only safeguarding our democracy, but to, to ensure that the, the you know the critical lifeline that the postal service provides um, is able to continue.
4: Representative Joe Nugis of Boulder and Colorado Secretary of
0: State Jenna Griswold, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that was CPR's Washington D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim. When we come back, we turn our attention to space and beyond. From junk high in orbit to the question of UFOs, or should I say UAPs, we'll explain in the next half hour. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR
5: News. Being member supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously.
0: I am humbled by the fact that people voluntarily give us money and puts a tremendous responsibility on our shoulders to give you back the best radio we can.
5: It is an
6: honor that people support this service and have done so for decades.
5: I'm Membership Director Jason Moore. CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity.
0: Earth seems to have a lot of challenges right now, so we thought we'd take a moment to look into space where there's a problem with a potential solution. The concern is litter. NASA calls low-Earth orbit the world's largest garbage dump, and it threatens the satellites that run your GPS and transmit your cell phone calls. A team at the University of Colorado in Boulder has a plan. They're not scientists, they're economists. Dan Caffeine is one of them. Welcome to Colorado Matters, Dan. Hi, good morning. Explain two things what is space junk and why is it a threat? Great, sure.
6: So the the, the space debris, uh, we can think of as essentially leftover satellites that are no longer uh, active, uh, bits of debris that uh, are left in space every time we launch something up there, and then also debris that's floating around from prior collisions and and prior explosions. Uh, And so all of that stuff is Sort of whistling around uh, the Earth at, at rel- relatively incredible speeds, uh, you know, 15,000 miles per hour sort of sort of speeds, uh, and um, and the risk there is that these things can collide with uh, satellites we have up there. They could collide with the International Space Station, the Hubble Telescope, and other things that we have uh, in low Earth orbit.
0: I can imagine that could cause some major damage. We think of space as big, but there's a lot of close calls and even collisions. In 2009, a Russian satellite called Iridium was destroyed when it collided with an abandoned satellite, also Russian. You say that space suffers from the same challenges that causes overgrazing on public lands and overfishing in the sea. It's an economic term, the tragedy of the commons. What is it?
6: The tragedy of the commons is a a really powerful idea, uh, that was originally advanced in 1968 in a paper in the Journal Science. Uh, but its roots go all the way back to Aristotle, uh, who observed that you know, essentially everyone's property is no one's property. Uh, and so when you have a resource or uh, you know, something like outer space, or if you have, say, fish or buffalo uh, or even 14 or trailheads, when, when these things are sort of open access to anyone that wants to to use them they tend to be overused the the, the user you know, each person does not you know does not account for the cost that they're imposing on everybody else so an analogy would be uh in uh, tra- traffic we often say i'm stuck in traffic but nobody ever says i am traffic right <laughs> and so a very similar uh phenomenon is is in play here where where satellite operators are you know concerned about the collision risks and the potential loss to themselves, but they don't account for the cost and the collision risks they're imposing on others
0: so taking it back to space, your solution is an orbit use fee. How would that work
6: so the the basic idea again this has this this idea has some long roots in in economic thinking of well if 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 satellite operators are not internalizing these costs that they're imposing on others, we'll impose an annual per satellite per year fee uh, that would sort of lead them to internalize the extra cost they're imposing uh, on, um, on other satellite operators. Uh, this fee would, would, would rise over time as, as sort of the resource became more valuable and we wanted to deter more, we wanted to de- provide more of a deterrence to additional launches. Uh, and this would need to be sort of harmonized internationally uh, across the dozen or so countries that that um, that can currently launch uh, satellites up there
0: so it sounds like that's sort of designed to be a barrier to entry to keep fewer things from being launched is that right
6: that's right so if you think about it in in, in for example in 2017 there were 466 new satellites that were put into orbit um, so presumably the, there was a 467th satellite out there where the operator just said you know what it's not a good, it's not profitable for me to put that up there. Uh, and so the, the purpose of this fee is to to make the 465th satellite or the 464th satellite uh, sort of make that calculation and say, you know what, it's not quite uh, profitable enough for me to put this satellite in orbit. That reduces the, the amount of debris up there and, the, and the, the number of potential collisions as well.
0: But I think about Colorado, it has a lot of smaller space-related companies. Does that put them at a disadvantage versus big government space programs?
6: The, the distributional implications of this are are, uh, are important, uh, and this is this is uh, in in other contexts where these sorts of uh, fees have been put in place or, or uh, systems have been put in place. These these concerns about how it affects different firms or different uh, entities is is always first uh, is is a very common concern, right? Uh, and so, um, at some level, we would be concerned that that this might push some of the smaller firms. Out, that's that's uh, certainly something for for future research to look at. On the other hand, those uh, smaller firms are still creating risks to your your cell phones, to your uh, GPS, to your uh, weather reports, et cetera, et cetera. And so, we, we at some level we still want them to 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 be considering the cost they impose on others when they launch their satellites.
0: And these types of taxes that encourage companies to internalize the risk or cost they're imposing on others, they've been used in other areas that are less glamorous than space. Uh, can you give me some examples?
6: Sure. So the uh, the, the probably the easiest analogy to think of that, that people are potentially familiar with would be something like a carbon tax, um, where, where we are not sort of accounting for each of our individual impacts on uh, climate change. And so, uh, a, a fee that uh, imposed on your carbon usage would be, uh, would be similar to that. Other examples are, uh, for example, F pricing for uh, sulfur dioxide emissions from power plants. Um, in fisheries, they have uh, pricing for, um, catching, for extracting fish from, a, from, a, from an open seas in a number of contexts. Uh, if you want to drive in a lot of European cities in the downtown area, you, you pay a congestion charge. Right. So if you want to drive in downtown London, you pay a fee to drive in downtown London. So those are sort of the, the, the analogs uh, of, of these sorts of fees in, in other contexts.
0: And those are all sort of old world industries. Is there an opportunity here to catch space early?
6: Absolutely, yeah. So we, when, we, when we began working on this project, we, we, um, we, we, we recognized all these analogies to all of these other uh, contexts where similar incentives were in place. We looked at what happened with fisheries, what happened with forestry, what happened with the buffalo on the plains, um, congestion, traffic, oil and gas, et cetera, all these other contexts uh, where we've seen the tragedy of the commons play out. And we, we were looking at this um, the space example where, where they're talking about um, the democratization of space, that no lo- it's no longer uh, just big countries and big firms that can access space, but your high school science class uh, can launch something up there. That's super exciting, uh, to have that level of access uh, to space. But at the same, we're looking at this as, you know, we know how this ends. right? Without the right incentives in place, uh, we very, very quickly get to a place where uh, the, the space is increasingly crowded and there's risks of collisions and additional collisions, et cetera, et cetera. So the hope here is to sort of get this in the conversation. Now, um, and not say 20 years from now where we start saying, oh shoot, I wish we had done something about this sooner.
0: Now briefly, SpaceX is reusing rockets. Do you think that this fee could encourage more recycling?
6: Yeah, that's a great, great question. The 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 basic idea behind that we're proposing here is really thinking exactly about those sorts of incentives. What incentives are there to sort of have junk up there? Uh and so a Similar a concept to, to these sorts of fees is often used in the context of product stewardship or producer responsibility. These are ideas about uh, things like appliances and cars and other things we use here on Earth where the man, the producer of these goods has a responsibility to sort of take them back. Uh, and so there's definitely scope for uh, for a type of fee that that. that Counts for that, You know, you could think of it almost like a bottle bill, but instead of for returning your glass bottles, it's for bringing your satellites or your rocket junk back down. Um, right. So vastly different scale, but sort of a very similar principle uh, as, as sort of trying to encourage this recycling or try to minimize the amount of waste that's going up there.
0: Well, Dan, thank you so much. Absolutely. Dan Caffeine is an economics professor at CU Boulder and co-author of a paper advocating attacks on satellites to reduce space junk. The Pentagon recently authenticated videos that have been around publicly for a few years. They seem to be of unidentified flying objects.
6: There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the essay. my gosh going against
3: the wind. The wind's 120 knots
0: the west. The Navy pilots in the clip didn't know what to make of what they saw, but those videos got a lot of people excited. People who think the objects came from Earth and those who don't. Denver author and popular science contributing editor Sarah Scholes has talked to people in both camps. Her new book is They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thank you for having me. We're going to talk ufology, the study of UFOs. We've all heard the term UFO, but I understand its definition has actually led to a new acronym as well. Can you explain
8: that evolution? Sure. Once the Pentagon started talking about UFOs, they began to call them UAP, or Unidentified aerial phenomena, which kind of divorces them from this old extraterrestrial connotation they always had and also leaves more room for military stuff, like the fact that they might just be stuff, um, you know, foreign objects uh, going into airspace they're not supposed to go to or things that can't be uh, identified immediately. So it's kind of an attempt to, to make a new cultural meaning out of what UFO used to be.
0: And you found that apparently there
8: are certain
0: people who are more likely to see a UFO or UAP. Who are they?
8: (laughs) Yeah, this actually comes from some statistical work that a woman named Cheryl Costa has done, and she found that the people who are most likely to see UFOs are people who have dogs and people who smoke because they are outside on the regular at kind of the same times of day, and they know what the sky looks like and when something looks off with it. That's so interesting. And you even had a time that you
0: thought you saw a UFO. What happened?
8: Yeah, I did. And it was very unexpected. I was up in Wyoming with friends watching the, the solar eclipse that happened a few years ago. Um, and we were just camping and uh, it was wildfire season, so we couldn't have a campfire. So we were just staring up at the stars and we saw this little light going in an arc and we, you know, we assumed it was a satellite. And then all of a sudden this spotlight seems to appear from it and kind of sweep down and stare directly at us. And we all thought, oh my gosh, it knows It knows we're here. What is that? Are we about to be tracked or beamed up into a UFO? Um, and then it just kind of swept away and and disappeared. Um, and then a few minutes later, I remembered something that I knew, which is that there's a phenomenon called an iridium flare, which comes from uh, an iridium communication satellite where the sun kind of reflects off its big solar panels and uh, creates this flash that looks like it's pointing directly at you like a spotlight. But um, it was... Uh, creepy and wonderful (laughs) so even though you have this scientific knowledge that goes
0: with it you do have this moment of kind of collective imagination even within your group
8: oh sure yeah i think i think a part of everyone's brain a would be really excited to see a ufo and just like before your rational brain kicks in um you know it's your your fear brain is like something is is coming to get me and uh, i was with a group of scientists actually and we all we all thought the same thing even though um in some sense we knew better Now, you've
0: attended a number of events where people gather to talk about UFOs. Many of them believe they've seen a UFO, but not all of them will want to talk about it. There's a passage in the book where you consider why they might be reluctant to talk about their experiences. Will you read it for us?
8: Um, yes, actually, um... I have misplaced my book. Would it be possible for you to read it uh, instead?
0: <laughs> I'm very sorry. You know, I'd love to. Okay, so this is um, from your book, and it's on page 19. It says, seeing a UFO and interpreting it is as something extraordinary seems a little bit like a doomed, lost kind of romantic love. It comes along when you're not looking for it. It amps up your ordinary experience, invigorates your day, your neurons fire with something so far outside your normal life that the world seems magical. And then... When it goes away and you return to baseline after dipping probably far below, you start searching for that experience again. But of course, you can't will it to happen and it's not the kind of thing you can really explain satisfactorily to anyone who wasn't there. It's not even an experience you can really re-inhabit yourself once it's gone. Tell me what it's like to attend an event like this where people are searching for that but at the same time don't really know how to talk about it.
8: Yeah, I think people like like that passage describes these these experiences that people have are very meaningful and even mine, which I later was able to explain. Um, you know, you really just have this sense of wonder and connection to the universe and a sense of uh, mystery that's really not often present in our everyday modern lives. When you know most things from lots of people are are pretty easy, and um, I think people have a hard time explaining to someone who wasn't there what this kind of singular experience was like. And, and it's almost like a, a spiritual experience for a lot of people. But it is, it is hard to get people to be able to, to describe it in a way that really brings back the feeling that they had when they were having it.
0: Now, not everyone interested in UFOs wears a tinfoil hat. I'd imagine most don't. Uh, what did you learn about who the people are who make up this UFO community?
8: Right. Actually, uh, you know, when I started doing research from this book, I had a lot of preconceived ideas about who was interested in UFOs, which was mostly hardcore conspiracy theorists. Which it turns out is not not true at all. Um, uh, I think one in six people has seen a UFO, and many more than that believe that there, there's more to this phenomenon than meets the eye, and um, There is a group of people that is very large, that is just kind of uh, what I call agnostically interested in UFOs. You know, they have this problem. It's been around for decades and decades, and no one has been able to explain it. And so they can just, you know, research. They can get government documents. They can do interviews with witnesses. And they really go about it in a a really investigatory, uh, almost journalistic way. And that, that really surprised me. And not to
0: tarnish the magic, but what might people actually be seeing when they think they've seen a UFO? You already gave one explanation for when you saw, when you saw your satellite.
8: Yeah, there's a number of explanations, and um, I'll say before I before I explain what they might be that in in every you know UFO, UFO investigation program that has happened, there does remain this small percentage that is unidentified, no matter how hard people try to explain them. So there does seem to be something, you know, mysterious going on up there, but, um, actually really, really everyday things like the planet Venus can look truly strange when it's really close to the horizon and flickering. And, um, it can, it can honestly look like a flying saucer, um, especially in places like here in Colorado where there's a lot of, um, air force and military activity. They could be, you know, flight exercises or, uh, secret aircraft that the public isn't privy to, um, Some people suspect that there's some some kind of electronic warfare going on that's confusing, um, you know, the the military pilots. Um, And then, honestly, I mean, even things like commercial planes can look very strange if they're coming at you head on. Um, And, yeah, so there's a number of explanations, but there is this percentage that that no one has been able to figure out. And I understand
0: that they can usually identify about 90 percent or more of UFOs. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. We played some audio in the introduction of Navy pilots who spotted some strange things. What do you think they saw?
8: (laughs) Um, I really, really wish I knew. And if you figure it out, I would like to know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's hard to know because the the videos that we have and that, um, you know, a lot of the public has seen in various news stories, we just get a small snippet of what's clearly something much longer that has a lot of other data like radar data associated with it. And so I don't I don't really think I'm qualified to say what they are, but lately when the Pentagon talks about these videos or talks about its interest in these so-called UAP It simultaneously also talks about how drone systems are much more common than they used to be. And so it seems like there's some kind of association there.
0: Now, one of your sources said the government had a policy of publicly debunking and treating lightly while privately investigating and treating seriously reports of UFOs. How has that affected what the public thinks about UFOs?
8: Uh, quite a bit, I think. So in the in the mid 20th century, there were a number of programs that ran for decades, um, federal programs in the U.S. to investigate UFOs, and uh, like this researcher said the the military invested money, invested time, invested people in figuring out what people were seeing. But at the same time, what it would say to the public is, oh, you don't need to worry about it here. Here's a bunch of explanations that we're going to put in a magazine article for, for how much you don't need to care about these. Um, and historically, the, um, the military and intelligence communities have been worried that UFO reports would you know, cause mass panic among people or clog intelligence channels. And so they have kind of a vested interest in in soothing our minds about it and getting, getting people not to pay attention. And that has understandably made people mistrustful of what the government has to say about UFOs because it doesn't tell us what it tells itself.
0: And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the difference between unidentified and unidentifiable flying objects.
8: Yeah, that's kind of a semantic but important difference. Um, Unidentified just means, like, I could look up, um, you know, I could look up at the sun right now, which is not advisable, um, and, you know, forget what it was and not know what it is, and that would make it unidentified to me. But, you know, someone else could go outside and point at the sun and say, well, of course, to the sun. So it is clearly identifiable. And so the difference really is whether whoever is observing or whatever instrument is observing can immediately tell what something is or whether no one, given a lot of time to investigate, can figure out what something is. I also want to
0: know about maybe the most iconic of UFOs. Let's talk about flying saucers. Where did that term come from?
8: yeah it has an interesting origin story um that happened in the nineteen forties when there was a pilot named Kenneth Arnold who uh was flying around. He was actually looking for a a military aircraft that had crashed, and what he saw instead instead was this fleet of objects flying much faster than he thought anything of the day flew um and he got back down on the ground and told people about it, told a reporter about it, said, you know, these things were going so fast, I have no idea what they were. And they skipped like saucers on water. Um, and that's that's what he says, he said. But then the reporter transcribed that as they looked like flying saucers in their shape. And so that's when, what went out over the news wires, and that's what ended up in a bunch of headlines. And so uh, according to the story, the term flying saucer is actually just a transcription mistake.
0: <laughs> and the story of flying saucers is connected to Roswell, New Mexico, a place known for UFOs. What's that connection?
8: Yeah, it was just a few months after that very first sighting that a rancher in outside of Roswell, New Mexico, was kind of, you know, checking out his distant property and came across this debris um, you know that looked like it had fallen from the sky and uh, he had read a news article about these flying saucers and he thought well hey maybe this stuff on my property is one of those flying saucers and so you know he brought it to the local authorities who brought it to the military who actually put out a press release that said yeah we got one of those flying saucers here in New Mexico um, and then they retracted it um, and said that it was just a weather balloon um, but that wasn't actually true and it came out decades later, that it was actually a very secret uh, atomic test detection balloon that had crashed on his property.
0: That's so interesting, especially going back to this idea that saucer was maybe not even the shape that the earlier 1940s pilot was trying to describe. Um, Uh, Right,
8: right. It just goes to show the power of the media. (laughs) There is
0: an alphabet soup of organizations and government programs, some still in existence, some defunct, dedicated to studying UFOs. How does Colorado fit into the larger UFO community?
8: Colorado has quite a few UFO sightings and a very active uh, local group called the Mutual UFO Network. It's a chapter of a national organization. MUFON is, is what they call themselves, and this is just a group of you know, private citizens who are independently interested in UFOs and also interested in identifying the ones that can be identified, and so people get training, um, and they, if you saw a UFO, you could submit a report to MUFON and someone who lives here in Colorado would contact you and try to figure out with you what you saw. Um, And so we have a very active group there. And then we're also home to the UFO Watchtower out near Great Sand Dunes National Park, which is uh, uh, an attraction where, you know, people, people gather, look for UFOs, go camping, and then, you know, submit their sightings to a sighting book and museum. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
0: you. Denver science journalist and author Sarah Scholes, her new book, They Are Already Here, UFO Culture, and Why We See Saucers. Finally today, the concert hall isn't normally a place protesters demonstrate, but it is a place for protest music, where artists can call for social justice. Tomorrow, our colleague at CPR Classical presents Troubled Water, two hours of music chronicling the African-American struggle. CPR's Carla Walker hosts. Aaron Copland's Lincoln portrait is a rallying call for equality and justice. He uses text from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, text that was poignant then, which was a dozen years before the civil rights era, and text that is poignant today as well.
1: Lincoln was a quiet man. Abe Lincoln was a quiet and a melancholy man. But when he spoke of democracy, this is what he said. He said,
5: as I would not be a slave,
1: so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy.
0: Doubled water, two hours of music reflecting the struggle of African Americans on CPR Classical Thursday at 7 p.m. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.